you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 1 Kings. We are attempting um, to tackle an entire chapter today. It's, it's a, a, a chapter that comes to us in three parts. It's a lengthy chapter, and it describes the history of um, the beginning of these uh, older versions, describe it as the Aramean Wars. That would also be just a synonym for the Syrian Wars, which is the terminology that our version uses. Um, but this is a description, um, and it's a theological account of these battles that take place. Uh, the first one taking place around the city of Samaria, the second one taking place at a border town known as Aphek. But the, the great point of this passage, uh, and I, the reason I think why um, so much description is given to us, it's rare that we have so much with these battles, um, is because of what it tells us about the character of God. Um, it encourages us, and, and it demonstrates things about God that, um, well, sometimes we, we uh, forget. So I'm going to invite you to stand. This is a lengthy reading, um, and I'm only doing the second half of the chapter, but I'll, I'll come back to the first half um, following. Okay, so we are in First Kings chapter 20, verses 22 um, through 43. Then the prophet, uh, an unknown prophet, came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this. Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad, that's the king of Syria, marched the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped up opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down, um, struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him, 
Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Would you bow your heads with me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name. We come now before you to hear your word. We ask that according to your marvelous grace, that you would grant understanding and faith to our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. We ask this not because we are deserving, but for the sake of your great name, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now before, um, so I read the the second and the third acts. Um, So we're going to go back just to the first act, and and I'll just summarize it for you. Um, But but the main point is that in this battle, uh, this first battle that I did not read, we see the surprising and amazing grace of God at work. Okay, So we're going to see the surprising and amazing grace of God at work. Chapter 20 begins with a brief description of a Syrian army that has encamped outside of the city of Samaria. This this army has been brought down by the king of Syria, um, and he is uh, joined with a coalition of 32 kings. These would be lesser kings, um, and probably king, you know, there was already title expansion in those days, so these weren't the kinds of kings that we might think of, but uh, lesser rulers of, of cities and towns, and, but they brought their men along. And so this coalition created an army that um, is somewhere tens of thousands of soldiers. And um, it's combined with horses and chariots. The message goes from King Ben-Hadad to the king of Israel who is in Samaria, King Ahab. 
And he tells him, um, essentially, you must surrender. Let me pick up the language in verses 3 and 4. Your sir, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So what's taking place here is um, Ben-Hadad wants to turn King Ahab into one of these lesser kings. He wants to be kind of assume this suzerain, superior king status and force the northern kingdom and King Ahab to become their vassal. Um, and what that means is, is generally two things. Number one, the expectation is that the northern kingdom, <laughs> that the northern kingdom is um, going to pay tribute. So one thing is that their silver and their gold will be sent to Syria. Secondly, um, we learn that um, uh, in these kinds of situations, that if Syria is attacked by their enemies, it is just understood that the northern kingdom, like these 32 other kings, are obligated to fight with Syria against Syria's enemies. So that appears to be, this is the, the terms that King Ben-Hadad is offering to King Ahab um, using this language. And King, apparently the forces of Syria are so great, Ahab doesn't even seem to think very much about this. There doesn't seem to be any discussion. He seems just to almost immediately uh, surrender. Um, he feels like it's hopeless, militarily speaking, and so he agrees to the terms. What we will see, well, what then happens is Ben-Hadad receives this immediate response. And he thinks to himself, that was too easy. I must not have asked for enough. And so Ben-Hadad sends a second message to King Ahab where he changes the terms. And what he now requests is to allow his soldiers that are again encamped outside of Samaria to go into the palace and into the houses of the wealthy and perhaps the entire city and to take whatever um, whatever they want, whatever the terminology is, whatever the king desires, whatever he finds desirable, that is what they are going to take. Well, this secondary request is too much. And so Ahab, he, he discusses it with his, uh, the, the, his advisors, with the elders of the city, and they say, okay, now we must fight. We cannot give in to these terms. And this sets up this, this first battle, the Battle of Samaria. And in the process, what we see is that God sends a prophet to the apostate um, king, King Ahab, with this message. And the message is surprising because if you've been following the narrative up to this point, and I know you have, <laughs> if you've been following the narrative, you know that King Ahab is a wicked king. You know that he has fallen under the judgment of God. And so what we are expecting here is for, um, we're expecting, this is the judgment. This is going to be the end of Ahab, the end of his administration, and a deadly defeat, a deadly blow to the northern kingdom because of their idolatry 
And more than this, their antichrist spirit of hostility to the true God and opposing and persecuting the prophets of God. This is what we're, we're, if you're reading through, this is kind of like, this is what's going to happen. Except it doesn't. Except we are surprised uh, by a, a turn of events, and we pick it up in verse 13. In verse 13, um, well, let me go back. We are in verse 11. Uh, let me go back even further. So the prophet comes. Well, I'm not finding it immediately. Okay, verse 13. Thus, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? And this is the prophet speaking to King Ahab. Behold, I will give it, that is the, the, the multitude of Syria, their army, into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And then he said, who shall begin the battle? And the prophet answered, you. Okay. So the prophet comes to him and gives him this amazing prophecy, this promise, where he says, um, behold, I will give it into your hand this day. That is, I'm going to give you victory uh, today over this mighty army. Now, we're not expecting this response from the prophet. We're not expecting God to uh, bail King Ahab out at this point. But that's exactly what the prophet declares, that God is going to show up, that God has not forgotten his people, that he, um, he maintains this covenant relationship. And so surprisingly, God is going to deliver the Israelites uh, from the hand of the, Samar- uh, the Syrians. And there's a little bit of strategy here. Um, he orders that 232 of the servants of the governors, so you've got various governors in the northern kingdom, they're going to send out, literally it says they're young men. And that may mean, uh, you know, some people think, oh, these were the crack troops, but others think these were untrained young men who will go out to the city. And secondly, we're told um, that Ahab is to initiate this battle. So they send the, 230, the 232 young men out of the city. Following them are all the troops, apparently, that Israel can muster. And it amounts to 7,000 men. This is a, a, a small group of, uh, this is a small army, relatively speaking, in comparison to the multitudes, as they're described uh, here, of the Syrians. Now, at this point, this is around um, in the middle of the day, and we're told that the king of uh, Syria, Ben-Hadad, is drinking. He's celebrating. He thinks, oh, this is going to be a smashing victory. And so he's celebrating getting drunk with, his, um, with, with these other kings. And his um, scouts tell him, uh, the men are coming out of this, this group of men are coming out of Samaria to meet you. And the king doesn't seem to take it very seriously. And he says, well, if they're coming in peace, take them alive. And even if they're not, take them alive. Well, we pick up the story then in verses 20 and 21. 
Here it is. And each, that is the men of Israel, struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. This was a mighty defeat, one of the great victories in the history of Israel. They broke up uh, what was going to be a siege of Samaria, and they, they inflict this mighty blow uh, upon the army of Syria so that the Syrians are forced to retreat and they're forced to return back to their uh, home country. This is, again, surprising to us. God, again, reveals himself to his people. And there are lots of things here that he's revealing, but two things. Number one, you cannot put God into a box. You can't um, uh, expect, you cannot limit God's options of how he is going to act. You might think you know how he's going to act, and then he does the complete opposite. He does the reverse. Over and over again, God defies our expectations. The king, that is the Lord, has other ideas. He has other purposes that he has often not shared with us, at least not in the particulars. There is a wildness to God. There there is a wisdom of God that is just simply beyond us. And so, you know, when we used to work at a camp uh, uh, way back in, in the 80s, You know, one of the common mottos of that camp was, expect the unexpected, okay? Expect the unexpected, because it always comes. And in part, that's what this passage is teaching us about God. Things do not go very often the way we think they, they will go or we think they ought to go. You know, given what we know about God, we think, well, this is what God is going to do. The second thing we learn. And it's in this case that it's the direction of his surprising uh, activity. God surprises us in the direction of showing amazing grace to the house of Ahab and Jezebel. He shows amazing grace to the northern kingdom that has so for, for many years violated God's commands regarding the worship. First of all, just historically, the worship of the calves. Have we forgotten about that? That appears to have continued. And in addition to this, now they have gone in wholeheartedly to the worship of Baal. They've made a full commitment um, to worshiping him, to the extreme of opposing the worship of God. God demonstrates compassion for his people, enough to save them, enough to give them Opportunity after opportunity to respond to his undeserved favor. And how should they respond? Well, if they recognize it as grace, they should respond with gratitude. They should respond with joy, with faith, with repentance. And if this is God's heart to a faithless people, to an apostate people, to a group of people who who knew better, How much more will God give opportunity after opportunity, grace upon grace, 
to those who have been covered, to those who have been purchased with the, the, the blood, the crimson blood of Jesus. You know, so often we think, oh, I, I've, I've acted in such a way, there's no way God will forgive. And yet here he is with Ahab demonstrating abundant, amazing grace. Do not harden your hearts. Uh, do, you know, and there are two directions that we sometimes harden our hearts. Uh, number one, um, it, it's, you know what? I don't care what God does. I, 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 I'm just going to live the way I want to live. Okay? That's one direction of hardening your heart. It's, it's like, uh, in spite of the fact that God continues to be good to you, to demonstrate his kindness over and over to you, with blessing after blessing, we harden our hearts and say, I don't care. I want what I want. I want to live the way I want to live. And I'm not going to turn my life over to the Lord. I'm not going to uh, confess or repent of my sin. So that's that's one direction. But the other direction is is what I've already described, and and that is the direction of saying, oh, you know, God can't forgive me. Uh, or, Or maybe, you know, I'm not the kind of person he would demonstrate grace to. No. If he can demonstrate it to Ahab and to Jezebel, He is more than willing and delights in demonstrating grace to you. By God's grace, Ahab and Israel have achieved an unbelievable victory against the proud Syrians to the north. This is not the end of the story. The prophet of God returns to Ahab with the warning. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has not given up on his dream of conquering the Israelites. King Ahab needs to prepare. Because the Syrians will return once again in the spring. And so this leads us to the second movement, the second act within this story. This this will take place at the Battle of Aphek. Following the defeat at Samaria, King Ben-Hadad prepares to make war again. However, before they reinvade Israel, the king and his advisors need to debrief. They need to figure out what went wrong. And so then they will be able to make the necessary corrections uh, for the next uh, battle that takes place. And so what the text allows us to do is the text like a, allows us to be a fly on the wall within this military council that Ben-Hadad conducts with his military advisors. And they begin to go over the previous war. And essentially, they determine there are two reasons why we were defeated. Number one, we fought largely in the hills. We fought in the hills, and, um, and, and their God, you know, they're not atheists here, and they say their God showed up. It's very clear that this was a supernatural defeat. And the reason why their God showed up is because we fought them in the hills, That's where their God is strong. And it's also, on the other hand, it's where um, our ability to use our horses and our chariots uh, is minimized. And so they determine the the first course of action is to choose the the next location of the battle. And the next location will be in a valley. It will be a a plain. It will be where their horses and chariots uh, are free and where, in their view, the God of Israel won't be as strong. He won't be able to supernaturally deliver them in power in the same way. 
So that's their first, um, uh, that's their first analysis. That's their first kind of uh, uh, conclusion to the f- previous war. The second uh, thing has to do with their, mil- their military command. Um, the king had allowed these 32 lesser kings to rule, to direct their own troops. And so the second principle that they decide is, is that the command structure was inadequate. And what the king needs to do is to place his own men competent, experienced generals over these various uh, platoons so that then they have a centralized command structure. And then there's a third thing they are committed to doing. And they are committed to replacing all the troops, all the infantry that were lost in the previous battle with fresh troops. So they are going to replace them, and it says, horse for horse, Chariot for chariot. They've got their chariot-making factories up and running hard in order to replace all the, the military um, uh, uh, resources that were lost. And so they're going to return, not in any way weakened, but just as strong. And with these changes, they're fully committed. Now they will have the victory. Okay? Now they will have the victory. The battle is drawn up at a fortified border town by the name of Aphek. And it's fortified because it has walls um, that apparently uh, encircle the city. We're told that Ahab also has made preparations. He listens to the prophet. The Israelites are provisioned. But did you, did you catch this little brief description? If you're, you know, you're using your, your, your Google Earth and you're looking down over the countryside of where the, the troops have formed, verse 27, we simply read this. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. Now, here's the description. The people of Israel encamped before them, the Syrians, like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. So on one side, you've got just these two little, if you're looking from above, two dots, you know, you know maybe seven to 10,000 soldiers, something like this. And on the other side, in terms of the numbers that are given to us, you've got at least 127,000 Syrian troops so much that they just fill the countryside in comparison uh, to, and apparently Israel had divided their troops into two groups, two little flocks of goats. That's what we're, we're looking at. And then the battle is given to us. And it comes in three phases. Phase number one, they are encamped against each other seven days. Okay? They're just staring at each other for seven days. And then on the seventh day, the battle is joined. And on that, uh, when the battle is joined, this battle takes place over just one day. It's a very quick battle. And in this battle, we're told 100,000 of the troops of Syria are killed. Okay? We, we have 100,000 troops that are uh, casualties um, uh, as a result of this battle. So, and, and the Syrians at this point know that the battle is lost. So 27,000, this leads to the third phase, retreat into the fortified city of Aphek. And there we just simply read. Now, I'll just read the story because it's in one verse, verse 28. Well, I'll I'll just tell you. Um, The people of Israel struck down uh, of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And then verse 30. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. 
and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now, what we are to understand is that God showed up. <laughs> this is Jericho, part two. And, and, and the story gives it to us like Jericho because of that little description of the seven days at the beginning. This is what happens at Jericho. They march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they blow their trumpets. The walls come down. This is very similar. And so these, these 27,000 soldiers who are in this fortified city, apparently they're either on the walls, they're manning the walls, and God supernaturally causes these walls to fall such that the rest of the, the remaining troops are killed. Okay, so 27,000 are killed. Now, the main lesson of this, this second act is given to us, and this is verse 28, where in verse 28, um, another prophet of God appears to the king. And here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, what are we supposed to get? Well, it's right there. The prophet tells us. What we're to understand is is that God is demonstrating in this demonstration of great power that he's not limited. He's not, as the Syrians say, limited to just being effective in a certain location or in a particular kind of geography. He's not limited to demonstrating great power in the hills. He's equally just as mighty. He's just as almighty in the valleys, in the plains. And this um, God wants to demonstrate not only to the Syrians, but also to his own people. His own people who so very often limit, they reduce what God can do. And so, um, and and it's very easy for us to kind of like look at what the Syrians described there and think, well, that was silly to begin with. But how often, maybe not, we're not hills and valleys kind of people, uh, but we are, we can be in, a, in other directions. Sometimes it's in the direction that Ben Franklin took. I, I, I came across this quote from uh, Ben Franklin. He's from a letter that he wrote to his friend, George Whitfield. Ben Franklin writes, I rather suspect from certain circumstances that though the general government of the universe is well administered, our particular little affairs are perhaps um, below notice. That is, you know, our daily goings-on are below the notice of God and left to take the chance of human prudence or imprudence as either may happen to be uppermost. Okay, so Franklin kind of has this God of the hills but not God of the valleys mentality. In Franklin's view, God, you know, he's going to be concerned with the big things. He's concerned with the planets. He's concerned with, you know, making sure that the world uh, continues in a, in a kind of fashion. But because, he, you know, th- these big things are, are so um, demanding, surely God really doesn't care a whole lot about what takes place on the ground. He doesn't care about the details of our lives. You know, again, we would look at that and think, well, clearly that's, that's wrong. And yet... What surveys are showing among many evangelicals is they have a very similar view of God. 
they actually do have a God of the hills, but not of the valleys view of God. Why? Because they view God as kind of out there, somewhere in space. And he really, you know, he kind of sets the world in motion, but pretty much all the daily goings on are up to us. And the only time we really go to God is, well, when we're in a crisis, (laughs) when there's nowhere else to turn. That's when we turn to God. Oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. I'm in a pit. You know, I I have nowhere else to turn. So now I turn to God. But that belies this limited, reduced vision of who God is. Jesus reminds us that God knows the numbers, the number of hairs on our heads. Now, for some of us, that's maybe a little easier than for others. But he also tells us that even the sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And Jesus goes on to say, if that's what he thinks about sparrows, how much more valuable are you than the sparrows? God is concerned. He intervenes in the very details of our lives. We, we live, we move, we have our being in God. Sometimes the, the reverse, though, is true. Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, I know that God is, you know, he'll help me, you know, in terms of, of uh, making sure my daily bread is provided. He'll make sure that he provides for, you know, my financial needs or Or I got a test, and I really need his help to to do well on that exam. He'll help me with that. But there are other things that are just too big for him. And so we have the reverse view. Oh, he he really can't take care of, you know, a, a family situation or a relationship that's been broken, or he can't take care of what's happening in the country. He can't bring the justice, apparently, that we, we long for. He can't bring, somehow, his kingdom. But again, this is what God is showing us in this passage. That's God of the hills versus God of the valleys thinking. God is sovereign over all. The psalmist tells us that God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he purposes. Nothing can hold back the hand of God. Well, then we say, well, why doesn't it seem like God is doing more? Well, let's revert back to principle number one. (laughs) We can't put God in a box. He is not ours to order, just the reverse. We are his to command. Then this leads to the third movement. And this leads to another surprise twist in the story as it concludes with God judging Ahab for his disobedience. Again, Yahweh, God, grants Ahab and the northern kingdom another mighty, undeserved victory over their enemies to the north. And just following the death of the remaining 27,000 Syrians, when the wall falls, some of the last surviving advisors of the king dress in sackcloth. They tie ropes around their heads to humble themselves. And then they appear before King Ahab, his advisors, because the king, King Ben-Hadad, is in the city of Aphek hiding. And they go to the kings hoping against hope 
that somehow the, the king of Israel will allow uh, King Ben-Hadad to live even after he has, in a sense, um, tried to commit these amazing war crimes, just invading an, uh, a land for, for no good reason except, except to expand his influence and, and, and territory. And so um, these advisors go to King Ahab, and they're looking for a sign. You know, will you allow King Ben-Hadad to live? And immediately, uh, King Ahab says, is my brother still alive? I didn't even know that. And they pick up on that term, brother, and they say, oh, yes, your, your brother, the king, is alive. And, and King Ahab immediately invites him to come out, and he invites him up into his chariot. And King Ahab, being in now, he's got all kinds of leverage. He, he um, allows the king to, to come up with these terms of surrender. And the terms are um, twofold. Number one, the, the Syrians will return uh, apparently several cities that had been taken earlier by King Ben-Hadad's father. So those cities will be returned to Israel. And the second um, part of the agreement is that now Israel will be allowed to have free trading opportunities in the, in the city of Damascus and in Syria. So this is an economic boon uh, for the, the northern kingdom and for King Ahab. And with this, Ahab it feels great about um, uh, making a treaty, making a covenant with the king of the north, allowing for these terms. Therefore, the king and whatever's left of his men apparently can return back to Syria. If the chapter ended right there, we would think, oh, this is a great chapter. You know, and, and what a wonderful victory for Ahab. But it doesn't end there. God does a strange, um, he's going to send an illustration through a prophet of how he views the situation, how he views this treaty that the king has made. And what he's going to demonstrate is that God is not uh, pleased. He's extremely displeased with this treaty. And so he sends this prophet who's been disguised with a wound, and he's disguised as an Israelite soldier laying on the side of the road, so that as the king passes by the prophet disguised, um, that the prophet cries out to him and says, Oh, king, you know, I was fighting, and one of, you know, another soldier or commanding officer placed in my care a uh, prisoner of war, one of the Syrian soldiers. And he told me that if I let him go, that, well, it would be my life. And secondly, uh, that it would be my life, or I'd have to pay like 75 pounds worth of silver. And here I am, O king, wounded, near death. Will you intervene for me? Will you help me? And the king just looks at him and says, well, it sounds like you're getting what you deserve. You know, you let your man go. Um, and, And then he continues to write on. But before he gets very far... The prophet takes off his bandages, and he reveals to himself that he is a prophet that the king recognizes. And he tells the king, you know, king, this wasn't really about me. It was about you. Because God, your commanding officer, placed King Ben-Hadad in your care. And um, apparently either Ahab knew or he should have known that, um, that God wanted judgment to come down on this king that this king was to be executed. He was not to go free, and none of his men were to go free, that this was a judgment from God upon this king and and these soldiers. And the result is, why did King Ahab do this? 
Well, it goes back to this Jericho imagery. Do you remember in Jericho um, that uh, you had one man by the name of Achan? And he sees an opportunity to enrich himself by stealing uh, some of the, the treasure from Jericho, and he hides it in his tent, and it brings trouble on the entire nation as a result. Well, in a sense, Ahab is Achan. Ahab is the one who, for personal benefit and for the benefit of his country, that is, the king was thinking pragmatically, he has this opportunity to enrich himself, why not take it? And he does, without seeking the will of God, without seeking the will of the prophet as to what should be done. And the result is, this is disobedience in God's view. And it's so sad, because after this great victory, which should have resulted in joy and feasting and celebration, this sin causes Ahab to go home, it says, sullen and vexed. That's a great word. We don't use that enough. Vexed. That is deep in his soul. He feels the judgment of God. And this last act reminds us of a difficult truth, that God hates sin. He expects loyalty. He expects allegiance from his people. He expects us to obey him with faith, and he rewards faith but he judges disobedience. And that's where this ends for us. And it is a reminder to us, you know, what's, what's the end of the story? Don't be an Ahab. <laughs> Don't enrich yourself. Don't give up the rewards of the Lord, the celebration and the joy for a small benefit, for a small uh, pleasure. Well, let's pray. Lord, you are surprising. And we thank you, Lord, that you are great. Your grace is great. Your power is great. And your wrath is great. Lord, may we be the kind of soldiers in your army, soldiers who are willing to stand for Christ, to proclaim the gospel truth, to proclaim the good news, of his coming, of his death and resurrection, along with the possibility of judgment for a refusal to find salvation and redemption in Jesus. May we be faithful. May we be faithful at whatever post where you have posted us. And may we as a church, Lord, may we serve you wholeheartedly. And so, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.